Hello and welcome to our University of Strathclyde podcast series, run out of the world-famous School of Education, right in the heart of the beautiful city of Glasgow in Scotland. We bring you a mix of meet and academic interviews, thought pieces, conversations and provocations on all things education, to give you a glimpse into our world-leading education research here at Strathclyde and of course to stimulate your questions and thinking around the meaning, purpose and practice of education in schools, in communities, and of course, in all our lives. Okay, hello and welcome to the School of Education podcast here at the University of Strathclyde. Um, As we said in podcast four, this is our 10th anniversary. And over the course of the year, we're going to be speaking with each of the four heads of school that we've had since our inception in 2010. So I'm pleased today to welcome um, Professor David Kirk, who was our second head of school. So welcome, David. Thanks, Claire. <clears throat> nice to be here. So I think what might be quite nice for the people listening is for you to see a wee bit about yourself, David. I mean, you're a professor in education, but maybe give us a wee bit of a history about where you've come from and how you came to be with us. Um, well, um, I was a uh, a student at the Scottish School of Physical Education from 1975 to 79. So, so you've um, just given your age away, okay. <laughs> I was very young at the time. <laughs> I actually was very young at the time. I was the youngest person in my year. And it means that most of the, the, the men who were in the course at the time have all now retired, um, which is quite interesting. Um, but uh, yes, I went to SSPE, which is the first of a, a new B.Ed. degree that had uh, just come in. Uh, we were known as uh, Bernard Wright was the director, and we were known as Bernie's book, Bernie's book boys. <laughs> that was the that was the older students used to call us that. Anyway, um, then I taught for a couple of years uh, in a place called Bells Hill Academy, um, and then did a master's degree at Glasgow University full time. Um, I got a social science research council scholarship. I was very lucky. And got to meet all these wonderful characters, uh, David Hamilton, Walter Humes, Hamish Patterson, um, Nigel Grant, who spoke eight or nine languages. No. Um, and, and then went straight into a PhD after that, after I finished the master's. So um, I then spent over 30 odd years outside Scotland. I went to, to England to do my PhD, to Loughborough. Um, I had a job, first job was at University of Queensland and spent uh, 16 years in Australia. Uh, come back to Loughborough as a professor um, and only returned to Scotland in 2014. So I've actually, I was actually away for a long time. So what was it that made you come back then to, to apply to be our head of school? Good question. 16 years in, 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 in England and um, I mean our kids effectively, although they were born in Australia, grew up there and are still living there. Um, but we did feel a, a pull to come home um, and there were personal reasons to those um, caring responsibilities for, for family and, and so on. So it seemed like a, a good time to be moving. Hmm. So given that you worked a lot of the time outside of Scotland and obviously, as you see, notably in Australia, I suppose, and during that time you were head of department and you've been a dean in, a, in at least one other institution. How do you think that helped you then coming to Strathclyde? Um, well, the, the, so the head of school job wasn't daunting from the point of view that I had, as you say, already had been a dean um, at uh, Leeds Met, which is a post-92 institution. I had been um, 
I've been a, a director of a research institute at University of Bedfordshire, um, and I'd also been acting head of department for a period of time at Queensland. So um, I suppose I kind of knew what, I thought I knew what to expect. Um, and there were, I suppose at that point in your career where you've been um, an academic for such a, a, a time, the, the way that universities work is not a mystery. You know how, even, even if you've been in different institutions and they've all got their own particular um, peculiarities, shall we say, um, nevertheless, you know how the system works, you know, and I think you get a kind of almost an intuitive sense of when something's not right um, or when something is right or, or how you might act in a particular context. So I think that would really be the thing um, that I would say best prepared me um, for the role at Strathclyde. When you say you thought you knew what to expect, that sounds like there was a surprise or two. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I had, and of course they never tell you these things at interview, but I had no idea that the faculty was in serious financial trouble. Um, and I spent the three years battling uh, that what was an austerity sort of um, a period of austerity for the school even though the school financially was doing very well um, but that really was that that really was a kind of defining feature of the time that I was I was head of school that we were constantly being told that we had no money to do anything and that um, we had to curtail certain um, activities and, and at the same time grow our, grow our student numbers now, I mean, that was some a situation I was very familiar with um, at uh, Leeds Met and at Bedfordshire, both post-92s, both obsessed with student numbers. And, and in England, of course, the income that comes with that. Um, I remember as a dean at Leeds Met, every Tuesday morning, the senior executive team met with the vice chancellor and we were interrogated um, in a three-hour meeting every, every Tuesday on, on what our student numbers were going to be and, and so on. So it wasn't a situation that I hadn't met before, yeah. but I was kind of disappointed that it was such a preoccupation um, that we had to think about money constantly. And we had to be told. Um, that, uh, what, the other thing that surprised me that I wasn't expecting is that the head of school had no control over our financial situation, that that was all done in the faculty. And that that's a very different organizational structure from how it works in the other faculties of the university. So, um, it's very hard to be strategic when you when you don't have control of your finance finances um, and you don't get to say right we can invest here we can put resource there because we're going to get a benefit from that down the line or whatever very difficult to to do that so those would have been the the main things that i didn't foresee um or wasn't quite expecting to this extent that mm -hmm. they, they came up and they're predominantly the challenges then you think that you faced over your term as head of school or <laughs> Did you amass more? No, I think um, I think that the challenge was to be strategic in that sort of environment, and I think that we did manage that. Um, I think that um, building on the the good work that Donald had done previously, because the way I understood the situation was that he had he had he had managed the transition from Jordan Hill to the city campus. Mm -hmm. um, I think he spent a lot of time putting spot fires out around the place. And, and I do, even in 2014, I, I had a sense that there were still some colleagues who were almost grieving for the, the place mm -hmm. they'd left behind, you know. Um, and why wouldn't they? <laughs> you know, it's such a magnificent facility compared to the Lord Hope building 
in comparison, mm-hmm. um, you know. Um, and a lot of our newer staff won't, won't understand that, I suspect, but I, I get a very good, strong sense of that when I, when I arrived. So I saw my job was really sort of um, building on what Donald had managed to um, secure in that transition period and, and move us on from there. And I think we did. I think we did that. I think we, we did manage to grow our student numbers. Um, we managed to... Um, we managed to, 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 to enable our staff to keep working hard, but also to, in most cases, to stay sane, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, but it was very, very difficult and very challenging. So that in itself, I think you could almost count as a, a success. The fact that we, um, we have, we've managed to retain so many colleagues uh, right through that whole period uh, when the challenges were huge for them. And given that you had all of these pressures, I suppose, um, or challenges. But you're also a professor of education. So how, how did you balance that being a professor and, and maintaining your academic profile while carrying the weight of such an administrative burden, I suppose? Um, I've, I've always been good at managing my time. Um, and I work fast. And I, I do use the MASH analogy um, to what we do in university work, which is... Um, I don't know if you remember the episode with Charles Emerson Winchester arriving for the first time. Mm-hmm. And Charles spends uh, the amount of time he, he sees one soldier, uh, fixes him up. Uh, Hawkeye Pierce has already done 10. And so he says in exasperation to Charles, um, Charles, here we do meatball surgery. We patch these soldiers up and we get them back safe to the hospital behind the, the, the lines. And I think that that analogy has always been there for me in, in academic work, that we do meatball surgery, we do meatball work. Um, it's got to be good quality, um, but you cannot be a perfectionist uh, in, in the academic world. And the people who have the biggest problems are people who are perfectionists, who can't let things go, who can't move on to a new task. Um, so um, I managed to maintain a pretty research active profile right through the, the whole time of being head of school. Partly because um, I really don't like the, 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 the notion that, and some people use this a lot, that I'm a manager. Mm-hmm. I really loathe that, that description. Um, I don't think that's what we do as heads of school or any other um, uh, leadership role. It is leadership. And, and I do think that, that you lead through example. You know, there's no point in saying, wagging your finger at folk and saying, you need to work harder at this, that, and the next thing, if you're not showing that you, mm-hmm. you're doing that yourself. Um, so, although I, I, I'm not saying I found it particularly difficult, I, I, you work hard, you work long hours, and, and you do all of those things, um, but you you need to be able to lead through, by example. You need to be able to lead through your own, um, I guess, um, your own willingness to to put in the, the time. So, if you're working all these long hours and you're working hard, what did you do to unwind at the end of the day, at the end of the week, or was there just no time for that? Oh, yes. Um, well, so music's always been a big hobby for me. So um, by the time I discovered uh, the the, uh, the Zoom R8, nothing to do with this kind of Zoom, uh, the <laughs> Zoom R8 um, eight-track mixer, uh, which is a wee plastic thing. Um, you can plug in your guitars and your sound mach- a drum machine and you can, you can plug in your microphones. So that was one of my hobbies was just to, um, to to make up songs and record them just for my own pleasure. So 
um, and you can get utterly absorbed in that kind of activity, you know, it, it really sort of um, uh, takes you out yourself in a sense. So yeah, it's always been that. Um, I like that you said for your own pleasure. I mean, if you're honest, you've recently been aired on American radio, have you not? Yes, yes, yes. The Thistle and the Shamrock, yes. Um, it, it wasn't a song that I wrote. It was um, it was a song that I was taught when I was, oh, 20, 21, when me, me and a friend were doing a summer tour of Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> and the song was, uh, the sky liked us. We were singing the threesome, actually, and, and he liked our vocal harmonies. And he said, can you teach you the song? Could you record it with me? We thought it was the song, but we never got around to recording it with him. But... Um, yeah, so it's a really nice song called Aaron Don't Change. Um, yeah. And our listeners can hear it on the Thistle and the Shamrock. Uh, they can, their... so if they go to SoundCloud, they can hear that and some other songs as well. Yeah. So what did you enjoy about the job? Um, for me, it's people. Um, it just just is, it just gets such a buzz from um, working with people, helping people, supporting people facilitating um, their activities and helping, helping them be the best they can be. Um, it may sound a bit corny, but that's actually what I enjoy most. Um, and sometimes, uh, even when you were in difficult situations, you know, somebody was very upset or you had a, a, um, somebody was sick, for example, that's always one of the hardest things to, to deal with. The idea that you're actually helping, that you're able to help, um, for me, was... Um, was really important. There's, there's a whole long list of things that I didn't like as head of school, like um, people who run meetings where they've got obviously no purpose and they're there just to pass the time. Um, paperwork, um, just for the sake of it, drives me crazy. Um, but no, uh, people, and, and so I include students in that. Um, um, I didn't have an awful lot of contact with students uh, as head of school, which is something that I thought was a a failing um, in reflection, I would think I would have liked to have had more contact with students as head of school, not just as a teacher or as a, a, a dissertation supervisor. Um, but the school was, was just growing so big through that period um, that the, 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 and I use the word advisedly here, the management of that whole process um, was just so challenging that it, it, um, it wasn't possible. Having said that, I mean, Having had Amanda Corrigan as uh, director of student experience mm -hmm. um, was uh, was the right thing to do because she had a particular talent for working with the students. What do you think was your biggest success then as head of school? Um, I wouldn't put it down to any one particular thing. I think the fact that we grew and we managed to um, consolidate and grow our research in particular was was. Uh, through all of the the, um, the challenges of, of increasing our student numbers of PGDE, uh, for example, went from, I think, around about 700 odd students to, well, we're now currently over a thousand, mm -hmm. um, plus the growth of the master's programme, plus the growth of the PGR. I think all of those um, have been important achievements. Um, but you can see in our, um, a, a ref output, a ref submission um, that's going to be happening within the next few months. Um, I think where we've got to, and I think we have moved on from, from where we were in 2014. Um, and I think that most of the time that is about facilitation. It's about 
having key people doing important roles and working with them effectively um, and empowering them basically to do a really, really good job. I mean, I've always had the philosophy that you, you entrust responsibility to people. And then if they let you down, you just show them how disappointed they are. And that's usually quite a powerful, in my experience, um, way to encourage the best of folk, you know, um, mm. that, that whole process of uh, shaking your head sadly and saying, oh my goodness, you know, really. Oh my God, you went to the same school as my mother. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I feel like I should quote Woody Allen at you. Um, those who can do, those who can't teach, and those that can't teach, teach gym. So as a, <laughs> as a former PE teacher, what are your biggest hopes and concerns for teacher education in Scotland? Um, when I left Scotland in 1982, um, I was ranting at that time about how parochial the place was. And that's, I guess, would have been one of the reasons why I felt I needed to go elsewhere, mm -hmm. although I never had any plan to go to Australia or, or whatever. Um, and since that time, of course, I've built my career internationally. I've got networks all over the world. Um, having come back to Scotland, um, of course, it's not the same place. It's, um, it's been transformed like everywhere else and, and it's opened up as much through uh, its digital, digital technologies and so on, you know, it is part of the global um, in that respect. But I think the parochialism is still there. And, and I think it's almost Scotland's worst enemy, you know. Um, here's to us and was like is um, that kind of attitude. Um, and, and I think we've got so much to be proud of, you know. We do have um, an outstanding tradition of excellence in, in teaching and teacher education. Um, I think our physical education is, is, is exceptional in Scotland. Um, it's just one example of, uh, that I happen to know of very well. But we've still got that, that hint of, of insularity. Um, and, and I felt it myself personally, having been away for so long and, and having this notion, well, I'm, I'm a Scot. I've always been a Scot. At one time, I was Scottish-Australian because I took out citizenship when I was there. But um, the Scottish part was, was, was part of it, you know. Uh, um, and to come back to your roots, in a sense, and be made to feel as if you're a stranger, you know, um, and, and I can understand that at one level, you know, the, the, you don't know um, people and you don't have lifelong connections with them in many ways that, for example, yourself would have and, and many of our colleagues. Um, so people say that Scotland's very welcoming and at one level I think that's true, you know, there's, it's, but it's a kind of superficial thing. And I think when you dig deep into that, you really do have to work very, very hard indeed to be accepted and, and um, so there was, I wouldn't name situations, but there were quite a number of situations when I was head of school that um, I found that um, I, was, I was made to feel like an outsider um, when I didn't feel like that, you know. I, I, so it was a kind of odd moment of experience. So that's my biggest concern. Um, and uh, the hope that we managed to keep the marketization of education out of our system, um, having been in England for, 15, 16 years and seen how far it's decimated the school system, how far it's decimated the university system. Um, I think that we are way, way ahead of what's been happening there um, in, in general terms. So that's my biggest concern. And I'm just hoping that we have a government that's strong enough to resist that.
Okay. Well, thank you very much, David. It's been enlightening speaking to you, even though I've managed to work closely with you since you joined the school. So um, I think there's something for us all to learn that um, perhaps those people who are leading us, whether we describe it as management or otherwise, um, have other things on their mind than just work all the time. Exactly. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening in to our Strathclyde Education Podcast Series. We'll be back soon with another episode.